Father, I, I don't know what each and every person's heart is like right now, but I'm guessing that I'm not the only one who's aware of their own weakness. Not the only one aware of frailty, not the only one aware of my need for you. So God, I pray, come speak to us. We're aware of our need, but God, I am also very aware of your great strength. And we are aware, we've been reminded again this morning of your promises. All that you have for us in Christ, in whom the fullness of God dwells. And so, Father, Lord Jesus, we ask you, come, speak to us, minister your grace to us, nourish us, build the church, we pray, not just here, but around the world today. God, we pray, feed us, Feed our inner beings, our minds, our hearts, our souls with the bread of life, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, would you take your Bibles or your little scripture journals, which we continue to have available out there in the bookstore, and turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6, the Gospel of John. Chapter 6. And this morning we have the special privilege of hearing an extended teaching directly from the mouth of Jesus. Before I read this, let me just ask you to think about something with me. What do you think? Think about this for a moment. What do you think it would have been like? to have actually been able to sit under the teaching of Jesus, right there. You're there in the midst of whatever crowd is gathered. He's up front teaching. What was that like? Sometimes I'm afraid we can get this idea that Jesus would just stand out by virtue of his physical appearance. You know, his robe would be like super white, gleaming, compared to everybody else's dingy clothes. And there would be this kind of glow around him, and his voice would be different somehow, such that you just couldn't help but realize he's different. It's obvious. But actually, and I think we all know this, despite the pictures we sometimes see of Jesus with his gleaming robes, Actually, he looked pretty ordinary, and his voice was pretty ordinary. But as he taught, as you sat there listening before long, you'd become aware of an unusual weight about what he was saying. There would be a sense of real truth, real truth, and real authority there. You'd find yourself drawn by that weight of truth and by that authority, or 
something would begin to rise in you to resist the power of what Jesus was saying. There would have to be some resistance, some pushing back, because you'd be aware that there is something there, something real, such that if you didn't resist it, you'd have to receive it. If you didn't receive it, you'd actually have to exert some energy to resist it. That's what was happening all the time when Jesus spoke. Jesus would be teaching. It would seem ordinary at first, but then those listening, whether it was in the synagogue or out on some hillside, they'd become aware of the weight of truth, and they'd think, wait a second, isn't that Joseph's boy? We We know his parents. He's just an ordinary man. So why this weight in what he says? Why this sense of authority? So imagine yourself there in Capernaum. It's the Sabbath day. People have gathered together in the synagogue, much like we've done here this morning, like they did every Sabbath day, to hear teaching from God's Word. And there would have been a much larger than usual crowd there that Sabbath. People had come from out of town. Many of them coming over from the other side of the Sea of Galilee because the day before, about 20 miles kind of around the curve of the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus had fed a huge crowd. And many of them now had come searching for him. So you're there in that packed place, and after the reading of the scripture, quite possibly something from Exodus that morning about God giving manna from heaven, Jesus would stand up and go to the front and start to teach. So listen, I'll start at verse 22, just to give us the background. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him her up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood... You have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him or her up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him as the living Father sent me. And I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Now, I probably don't need to tell you this. I think you can sense it. But this passage is just packed. It's like a suitcase, very carefully and tightly packed, and I want us to do our best to unpack it this morning to see what is here for us from God's Word. And as we do, we're going to discover, I believe, five key truths that are here. They're related. We'll see that. But let's pull them out and look at them one at a time. Each one of them is important. Each one of them is weighty. Each one of them is wonderful. And each one of them is very much needed. Listen, I'm operating on the assumption this morning that we need this. Every one of us needs this somehow, no matter where you are. So as we look at these truths, you be thinking, how does that matter to me right now? I I say this in all confidence. God has something here for you this morning. So first... Truth number one, there are things that perish 
and there are things that last forever. There are things that perish, and there are things that last forever. Look back at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? I mean, here these people are, and they're wondering, how long have you been here? When, when did you, how did you get here? I mean, they're still locked into what happened yesterday. And notice, Jesus does not bother to answer that question. He knows what's going on, why they're there. They've seen the miracle. Jesus feeding thousands of people with five little loaves and two fish. And man, were they impressed by that. And they witnessed this miraculous sign, but what they failed to see was what that sign signified, what it was pointing to. They didn't get that that miracle was like an acted-out parable with a point, and that giving of bread was pointing to Jesus himself. So Jesus doesn't answer their question, and instead he zeroes right in. Please notice his first words in verse 26. Jesus answered them, truly, truly. We're going to see those words several times in this passage. Here's the first time. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. There are things that perish And there are things that last forever. And Jesus is calling us to make sure to focus our attention, our energy, our hearts on that which lasts forever. And I think we get what he's talking about. I mean, as a society, as a human race, in fact, we have experimented with every possible form of alternative satisfaction for our souls. Pleasure and all sorts of different highs and success, and power, and possessions, and this and that. And Jesus says it as straightforwardly as he can. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't live your life just chasing that which perishes. Do you remember the dot and the line? We haven't talked about that for a while. So imagine with me a little dot. Think about maybe a dime and place it on the far end of the stage, that's your life. And then imagine from that dot proceeding a line, an arrow that comes all the way, all the way across the stage and just continues all the way past the wall and just keeps going on forever. That's, that's eternity, your eternity. Not just eternity in general, your eternity. So that little dot represents the 70 or 80 so years that you've been given, and that line is your eternity And the frightening thing is, is that it's possible for people to live for just the dot and completely neglect the line. A lot of people do that. And Jesus is saying right here, don't do that. Don't live for the dime. Just for houses and wealth and success and pleasure and things that perish. Make sure you're laying hold of that which is forever. I mean, it's hard to miss how many times that phrase eternal life shows up in this passage. If you're using a scripture journal or if you don't mind marking in your Bible, just circle it every time it shows up. Verse 27. 
Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. You'd almost think Jesus wanted us to hear something. Listen, Jesus did not come down from heaven just to offer a few things to make our lives more comfortable here. Jesus is not just offering a little something to make our life a little better, you know, a little help here with this problem, a little help there with that, uh, that situation. Jesus helped me with my grades. Jesus helped me find a job. Jesus helped me find a spouse. Stuff, you know, to make our lives nicer and more enjoyable. No, what he's offering is an entire package and it lasts forever. He's offering us life and life eternal. And apart from him, we're perishing no matter how comfortable and nice your little dime might be. Truth number one, there are things that perish and there are things that last forever. Second, truth number two, Jesus and only Jesus is able to give this life that lasts forever. Jesus and only Jesus is able to give that life that lasts forever. Look again at verse 27. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal, which simply means that God has given him full authority. You know, this this is, I believe, the main truth, the main message of this passage. Jesus, and only Jesus, is able to, to give this life that lasts forever. You know, he's picking up on their desire for bread. Remember Jesus had just fed them, and they've come over wanting more of that, and Jesus knew that. And so picking up on that symbol of bread, which nourishes and gives life, that's what bread does for our physical bodies. Now Jesus said, listen, I am the bread of real life. Three times he says it. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, we're going to get to that in just a second, that my flesh thing, which seems more than a little off-putting. But for now, let's make sure we hear what Jesus is saying about himself loudly and clearly. Jesus, and only Jesus, is able to give this life that lasts forever. You know, when Jesus first says this, I'm the bread thing, people misunderstand. Just like the woman at the well misunderstood when Jesus started talking about giving her living water, so these people misunderstand. Look at verse 34. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. I mean, they were thinking that Jesus was talking about something that he would give them again and again and again. 
But Jesus says, listen, whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Your core hunger will be satisfied. Your core emptiness will be filled. Jesus says, that's why I came, that you might have life. I came to bring you life, and there's no other way to get it. You know, we want this. We were made for this. There is a deep longing in every one of us for this soul satisfaction, this life. And we're looking for it. Our hearts are constantly on search mode. Where is it? How do I find it? Augustine said it so well. Our hearts are restless, constantly searching. And so often people are looking for it in the things that perish. And Jesus is saying here, come to me. I am the bread of life. Truth number two, Jesus and only Jesus is able to give the life that lasts forever. Third, truth number three from Jesus' teaching. This is where it starts to get hard. The way Jesus gives this life is through his death and his resurrection. The way Jesus is going to bring that life to us is through his death and his resurrection. And you might say, well, why doesn't he just give it to us? Well, why does he feel the need to, to die and all of that? Well, the fact is, there's something in the way. We have erected a barrier that has to be dealt with. I, I don't know if it's just me, but it seems like I've noticed recently in some TV commercials this thing of people running into glass walls. Have you noticed this? I've seen it in a few different settings. It's almost like these companies are trying to add a little slapstick humor to their ads, but it's this idea that there's something in the way that you can't see, but it's real. And it's like that with us. We want to pretend everything's okay, there's nothing in the way, but the fact is there's a wall that separates us from God and from life with God, and we, we kind of keep running into it. The Bible is very clear. All have sinned, and the wages, the penalty of our sin is death. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son to come and take away our sin, take our sin upon himself on the cross to take away the penalty for our sin. That's why he died. And so he just smashes through that wall of sin. He tears it down by his death. He deals with the sin problem. And then he smashes through the result of our sin, death. He conquers death through his resurrection. And now he stands and says, here is life. I have life for you. So when Jesus says at the end of verse 51, look there. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And when he says, verse 53... So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He's referring to his death. But still, you hear Jesus say that and you think, Whoa. I mean, you can understand why the people reacted the way they did. Verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And look down at verse 60. After Jesus said that a couple more times, Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? 
But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? I have developed uh, over the past few months a, a, a very special little connection with a young man in our church family. Actually, he's five years old. Uh, he's almost six. He's got a birthday coming at the end of this month. His name is Tyler, and he sends me questions. Actually, he asks questions at home, and his mom sends me questions. By the way, I am not advertising here for some new pastoral service <laughs> for all you parents of five- and six-year-olds. So back in December, Tyler asked me this question. How is it possible that God never sleeps? And I did my best to answer his question. Here's what I wrote. Hello, Tyler. I'm going to do my best to answer your really good question. First of all, you are right that God does not sleep. He is always awake and he watches over us all the time while we're awake and while we sleep. The reason why God doesn't sleep is that he is omnipotent, which is a big word that means he is all-powerful. He never gets tired or worn out at all. Unlike you and me who get tired after we work hard or play hard, God always has endless strength and energy. That is part of what makes him God, and it is part of why we worship him, and it is part of why I love him so much. I love having a God who is all-powerful and still is my loving Father so that he can watch over me and care for me, full caps, all the time. I'm glad you asked your question, Tyler. Come and say hello to me on Sunday if you can. With lots of love, Pastor Bullmore. Well, a month later in January, I got this question from Tyler. Where is heaven and what is it like? So again, I did my best to answer his question. I won't read my answer. It's a little longer. And then last Sunday, I got this question. When people die... How does God get them up to heaven? So I sent an email back, Tyler, through a pneumatic tube. <laughs> no, I didn't say that. <laughs> Once again, I did my best. But I tell you, this pastoring of five-year-olds is challenging. But listen, none of Tyler's questions are as challenging as this. Jesus is saying a strange and confusing thing, and we hear this and we say, what? I mean, look at verse 55. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. What? Well, let me show you something that will help a bit. Look back up near the beginning of chapter 6 at verse 4. Now, the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. Jesus knows what the great Feast of Passover is pointing to. His sacrificial, substitutionary death on behalf of the people. And he knows there's a time coming in the not-too-distant future when he's going to gather with his disciples in that upper room and they will celebrate the Passover and he will take the Passover bread and break it and say, this stands for my body, which is being broken for you. Take and eat. And then he'll take the Passover cup and he'll say to them, this stands for my blood, which is going to be shed on your behalf 
For the forgiveness of your sins, take and drink. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm going to offer up my body and my blood's going to be poured out and that is the way I'm going to bring this life to you. And you're going to have to receive it. You're going to have to take it in. You're going to have to accept it. You're going to have to put your trust in it. So when he says, eat my flesh, he doesn't mean literally. Jesus is not advocating cannibalism here. No, this is a metaphorical way of saying what he's already said. Look back up to verse 40. I think this will be helpful. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now look at verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you see that parallel? That tells us that when Jesus says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, in verse 54, he's saying the exact same thing as he said in verse 40 when he said, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him. Except now, he's emphasizing that it's going to be by his death that he will bring us life. You're going to need to receive my death, my body given for you. In order to receive this life, you will need to believe in and put your trust in what I did for you. Which leads us right to truth number four. Here it is. God the Father is behind all of this. God is the one making this happen. He's initiating this. He's accomplishing his purpose. But there is something we must do, and that is believe. So there's kind of two parts to this fourth truth. There's a God part and there's an us part. Let's make sure we see the God part clearly first. God is behind all of this. He's initiating all of this. It's his purpose and his power to save that is driving this whole thing. Look with me at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. We see the same thing in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. How will God do this? Look at verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. In other words, by some moment of hearing the truth, some spiritual insight given, some teaching, some illumination imparted into the person, they will be taught by God. They'll come to see the truth, and so he will draw them to Christ. But do you see? God has to act. God must act or we will be lost. We cannot make our salvation happen. We're not able to do this. Sometimes as humans, we can think that we stand in this state of kind of moral and spiritual neutrality with the ability to choose either for or against God and that ultimately the decisive factor in whether or not we are saved is our choice, the exercise of our will. Friends, I want to say this pastorally, but I want to say it clearly so that you are not deceived by yourself or by anyone else. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we are dead, spiritually dead in our sins apart from Christ. We are in a condition of spiritual inability. The point here in John 6, is that God and God alone saves sinners. He is the one who must save if we are to be saved. And that can be very troubling to us in our natural pride. 
And not just intellectually troubling, that can be existentially troubling. Deep in the core of our existence, we don't like this place of helplessness, and because it's existentially troubling, it produces intellectual troubles. Some time ago I read this illustration. I found it so helpful over the years. This is by a guy who is teaching this truth about God's sovereignty and salvation. Here's what he says. After giving a brief survey of these doctrines of sovereign grace, I asked for questions from the class. And one lady in particular was quite troubled. She said, this is the most awful thing I've ever heard. You make it sound as if God is intentionally turning away men who would be saved, receiving only the elect. I answered her in this way. You misunderstand the situation. You are visualizing that God is standing at the door of heaven and men are thronging to get in the door and God is saying to various ones, yes, you may come, but not you or you or you. The situation is hardly this. Rather, God stands at the door of heaven with his arms outstretched, inviting all to come. And yet all men, without exception, are running in the opposite direction towards hell as hard as they can go. And so God graciously reaches out and stops this one and that one and this one over here and that one over there and effectually draws them to himself by changing their hearts and making them willing to come. I want to tell you I love this truth of John 6, 44. And the more I get it, the more I love it, I do not want a salvation in which I am the decisive factor. This truth that my salvation is from God is so precious to me. This is, this is saying that God does, in fact, supernaturally draw people to Christ. On our own, we're lost, but thanks be to God, he has not left us on our own. God has taken the initiative He actively loves and seeks and draws them to himself and he uses all kinds of means to help them come to a point of recognizing their need for him. That's the God part. But now let's let's look at the us part of truth number four. There is still something we must do and Jesus does not hesitate to say it. It's a very clear call with all kinds of active verbs. You must look to the Son. You must receive the Son. It's all summed up in that active verb, believe. You must believe. You must actively put your faith, your trust in him and what he's done. And just listen, verse 35. Jesus said to to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Look at verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. In fact, did you notice earlier in the chapter that Jesus speaks of this belief as the work that we must do? You remember the question that people asked, verse 28? Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? It's the question we all ask at some point, in one way or another. What, what do I need to do to get to heaven? What do I need to do to be right with God? Do I, do I simply need to obey the Ten Commandments? Do I just need to do good and be good? Do I need to go to church? Do I need to give money? And Jesus looks every one of us directly in the eyes, and he makes sure we have our attention, and then he says, verse 29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The work 
is to not work, but to believe. Or to put it another way, a more graphic and startling and unsettling and provocative way, verse 51, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And he proceeds in the following verses to repeat that very same point five more times. Just look at verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I said to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. What does that mean? Verse 40, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. All right, finally, truth number five. For those who believe, there is something wonderful awaiting us that we should eagerly look forward to every day of our lives. For those who believe, there is something real, something out there, something wonderful waiting for us that we should eagerly look forward to every day of our lives. Some years ago when I was in college, a friend of mine invited me to visit an Episcopalian church with him. It's the first time I believe that I'd been in a service like that and I was of course just curious. And as we went through the liturgy, we came to a particular hymn which was to lead us into communion. We sang this hymn called, I Am the Bread of Life. And we came to the chorus, and this is what we sang. And I will raise him up. And I will raise him up. Maybe some of you remember this. And I will raise him up on the last day. And as we sang that hymn, all six or so verses, every time we came to that chorus, I was so moved by that truth, I was struck by the reality of that fact and what it meant for me and for all who believe. I do not know how I had missed them up to that point in my life, but those words are taken right out of this passage. And they've been precious to me ever since that day. Four times Jesus says it. Look, I want you to feel this too. Verse 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him or her up on that last day. Verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him or her up on the last day. Verse 54, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him or her up on the last day. Listen, God's plan will not change. His purpose will not fail. His promises will not be revoked. The life of Christ in you cannot be nullified. If you belong to Christ, he will raise you up on the last day, which will be like the first day. Christian, what an encouragement that should be to you every day of your life. In the face of your doubts, day by day, in the face of your wondering, what will happen to me then? In the face of your struggles, whatever they might be, in the face of Tyler's question, which is a question we all have, how will God get me up to heaven? 
Jesus says over and over again so that we hear it, so that it goes deep into our consciousness. If you come to me and you believe in me, you have eternal life, and I will raise you up and call you to be with me so that where I am, you may be also. What a fantastic thing to look forward to. Dear friends, there is something that lasts forever. A life. And Jesus is the one who is able to give us that life. He has purchased it through his sacrificial substitutionary death on our behalf and his resurrection from the dead. Yes, ultimately this is all of God. This is all God's doing. It is his purpose and his power that saves. And when we believe, when we receive, when we take this bread of life to ourselves and say yes, we receive the free gift of eternal life for this is the will of my Father. Jesus says that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for instructing us. Thank you for this word and thank you particularly for this book and this chapter, this moment captured, preserved for us through all these hundreds of years so that we can sit at the feet of Jesus and hear him tell us, I'm the bread. Don't be looking around. Don't be trying to find what you cannot find anywhere else. Come to me. Find life in me. Turn away. Repent of that other nonsense and put your trust in me and find life in me. Lord Jesus, thank you for the life we have in you. Amen.